Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Dr. Smith is here with me in the studio, and we're going to introduce to you today a sermon by the late Reverend Peter J. Gomes. Peter Gomes was the plumber professor of Christian morals at Harvard Divinity School and the minister at Harvard's Memorial Church. He's a native of Plymouth, Massachusetts, grew up in the First Baptist Church there, studied at Harvard. He then became, for a while, for two years, I think, the minister to the university at Tuskegee University here in Alabama, returned to Harvard and became the minister of the Memorial Church, where I came to know him during my years as a student at Harvard. This sermon was preached near the end of his life, Dr. Smith. It's really an Advent sermon entitled Humbug and Hope. Tell us about it. Here's a sermon in which Dr. Peter Gomes uses a very artistic framework for presenting this sermon. Uh, Obviously, he's going to use Ebenezer Scrooge and the, the Christmas story to talk about the danger of cheap hope in having a conversation with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's corrective surgery because it's inductive. He's going to say that Advent is not what we think it is. It is not that which is without adversity. He shares several uh, ways in which Advent is a time of pessimism, more crime, uh, more sadness, depression, etc. So he gives us several pictures in establishing what Advent is not. Is not this, is not that. Eclectically, using music, Handel's uh, Messiah, uh, using great thinkers, using images, until he finally comes down to the last uh, thing, and that is, what is hope? By using lectionary texts like Isaiah 40 and Proverbs 13, 12 and Romans 5, he comes down to the end to say this, that hope is really in the already not the not yet. We already have it. It's Romans 5. And the hope, he says, is in the reconciliation that is effected through Jesus Christ. So it's not something that we're wishing for. It's something that we already have. And therefore, in the midst of adversity, we ought to lift up our heads because we have been reconciled in Christ. I think this is a solid biblical doctrinal statement. It has nothing to do with good feelings because there's glad tidings and all that kind of thing. Uh, Salvation Army, this, that, that. The fact that we have reconciliation in Christ and that has already been done for us gives us a reason to have hope in the already, even though the not yet will bring it to full realization. You know, that's a wonderful word to be reminded of in this season of Advent. As we look forward to celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ into our history and into our lives. So let's try to avoid the humbug and hang on to the hope, the certain hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. So we go to Harvard University, the Memorial Church, and to its minister at the time when he preached this sermon, Peter J. Gomes. Humbug and hope. As is often the case, my text today is drawn from neither of the lessons, but is the means by which the lessons are strung together and the hook upon which I hope you will hang your thoughts 
as much as I hang this sermon. Therefore, it is from the 12th chapter, the 13th, uh, 12th verse of the 13th chapter of that book of Proverbs, that book full of worldly and witty and useful advice. These words, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Now let me begin with what I hope will serve as a useful definition, not only for the purposes of my title and of my sermon, but as you read the papers and listen to the news and watch television and make sense of the world in which we are set over the coming days. This is the useful definition of the word humbug. Humbug, noun, deceptive or false talk or behavior. The second meaning, an imposter, to be or to behave like an imposter. Third meaning, to deceive. Origin unknown, but evidences on every hand. Humbug. Let that word just hang in the air for a few moments. Humbug. You know what it is. You know what it means. You may know one. You may be one. Perhaps you're sitting beside one. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. If you didn't know that, you can tell, because there are two candles lit on the Advent wreath. Last Sunday, as you were here, I was in my home church in the First Baptist Church of Plymouth, where, as here, the first candle of the Advent wreath was lit with due ceremony, the candle of hope, as the minister explained. I listened patiently. For all of my ministry and nearly all of my life, I have sat in church on Advent Sunday and heard the proclamation of hope, and I have watched the candle being lit. Remember the famous words Adlai Stevenson used of Eleanor Roosevelt at her funeral. I would rather light a candle then curse the darkness. And she did, and so do we. But I must confess, as I thought about Advent last summer in preparation for today, and as I experienced its arrival last Sunday, I said to myself, I know more of humbug than I know of hope. Humbug I can name, humbug I can see, humbug I can offer, humbug I have experienced. But what about hope? Advent keeps coming over and over and over again, and yet things seem as bad as ever, perhaps even worse. And Jesus seems no nearer in either his first or his second coming than he was last Advent 
or the advent before that one. There are preachers all over Christendom this morning who are doing their level best to make sense of the advent hope despite the experience of hopelessness of so many of us for so much of the time. Now, over Thanksgiving weekend, I saw the first of at least a dozen televised versions of Dickens's Christmas Carol, in which my favorite character, the much-put-upon Ebenezer Scrooge, utters for the very first time those immortal words, bah, humbug. When he utters these words, remember it is in response to being asked to contribute to the social welfare programs and charitable causes of the solicitors uninvited who come to his door, jiggling their can for change, offering their book for him to subscribe to. They think he wishes to be anonymous in his charity when he declines to have an amount put down beside his name. He simply wishes to be left alone. His argument is simple. What good does all this charity do? Is that not why we have public institutions, the prisons, the hospitals, the workhouse? He has heard it all before, and it is as ineffective now as it was before. Bah, humbug. Leave me alone. I will not consent to this emotional extortion. I like Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> he is an honest man, and I will not submit to emotional extortion. Now, that is counterintuitive, we know, because we are supposed to feel good about this time of the year. We can feel miserable all year, but somehow, after Thanksgiving and before New Year's Day, we are supposed to feel good. Now, why that is, is not altogether clear. For the papers are not full of good news. In fact, the little good news that the papers are filled with stand out in contrast to the reams of bad news that we have on every hand. But the Salvation Army and the Globe Santa depend upon our feelings of goodness and philanthropy and charity, and so too does this church. We could have the annual appeal in August, but we don't. We have it now, and we feel that once you get the checkbook out, you may as well include us in your irrational philanthropy as well. The secular culture which surrounds us on every hand has no theology of which to speak, but it defines the season in terms of charity and optimism. And we are all made to play our part or feel guilty about not doing so. And yet the world seems more precarious than ever. Our leaders deceive and mislead. And we look for quick fixes around every corner, and we find none. It may be an urban legend, but psychiatrists tell us that this is the season of the most intense 
mental distress and depression. And why? People prefer hope to humbug indeed, but they are invariably disappointed. Expectations are almost nearly always overwhelmed by experience. This year, Christmas will be that wonderful reunion with our family. Our dreadful relatives will be less so. And we will contribute to the tidings of good cheer, comfort, and joy. But experience tells us that is not necessarily the case. Bah, humbug on the whole thing. But what of the church? Are we not meant to be an antidote to all of this? Surely our hope is not misplaced. Surely we are not investing in a naive image of a world that never was and never can be. Surely there is a dose of realistic hope in our midst. Well, I wonder. I genuinely, really do wonder. In the first lesson, which Dr. Counter read for us this morning, although it was a slightly butchered translation, one could still recall the familiar cadences of Isaiah. For it is almost impossible to hear those words in any version without hearing the musical cadence of Handel's Messiah. Perhaps still the most popular piece of choral music in the world, and that after 200 years of abuse at the hands of amateur choirs and choral societies. Comfort ye, comfort ye, says my people. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Every valley shall be exalted and every hill shall be made low. The rough places plain, the crooked shall be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be... Can't you hear it? Can't you feel it? Of course you can. In my undergraduate course the other day, I asked if there was anyone present among the 60-odd undergraduates who had never heard Handel's Messiah. Three brave souls raised their hands and said they had never heard the Messiah. Well, I determined to improve their education, and I said in an impulsive moment that I would buy each of them a full recording of the whole thing, and the only requirement was that they had to sit and listen to the whole thing. That was easier said than done, for I went out to do this very thing on Thursday night to realize, as I should have known, that Briggs and Briggs has been out of existence for some years now. The Coop hasn't sold records in 10 years. And HMV has disappeared from Brattle Square. There I stood on a cold Thursday night in the middle of Harvard Square looking for the Messiah. <laughs> he was nowhere to be found. But my splendid seminarian told me that there was a place tucked around the corner called Tower Records. And if I went in there and went upstairs so as not to be contaminated by the pop music on the ground floor, I could find possibly Messiah. Well, 
there are at least two dozen versions of Messiah. I got my three, and I gave the recordings to the students on Friday morning, and I hope that they are listening to them, perhaps even as I speak. Handel makes it all sound so plausible. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Speak ye comfortably through Jerusalem and say that her warfare is accomplished. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. All we like sheep, except those of us who like ham. The Handel and Haydn Society fills Symphony Hall with people who still want to hear these glad tidings in its most magnificent musical setting. And yet, is it an exercise in hope, or is there more of humbug to it? Our ushers have reported to me over many years that the most disagreeable service of the year when the congregation behaves the worst and where hazardous duty pay should be extended to the ushers is the carol service. That you who come to the carol service to hear the tidings of comfort and joy are a horrible group of people with whom to deal. You hoard seats, you hold seats, you speak through the prelude, and you are very zealous of your rights with regard to anybody who gets in your way. Old tidings of comfort and joy. Bah, humbug, and we'll see it in two weeks' time. But perhaps, perhaps, perhaps we hope for the wrong thing. Perhaps we have the wrong image of hope. And perhaps we have been looking in the wrong direction. As Betty Blue knows, I have never had much use for Emily Dickinson. But on occasion, she gets it right. The Bell of Amherst says of hope, Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Now forgive the fact that she rhymes soul with all, and you find in her four-liner an elusive, fleeting clarity that endures in the most private of spaces and never gives up. Hope is not a policy, nor is it a doctrine, nor is it a form of nostalgia, theological or secular. It is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And I like that word, perches, for it almost always suggests precarious. Perches are always precarious, don't you think? And delicately balanced. There is something fragile about this, and yet it abides, however precariously, at the very center of our being. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Now, we do not usually think of St. Paul as fragile or precarious, and few would ever think of him that robust Jew and super-Christian in the same breath as the bell of Amherst. 
But could that thing with feathers be the same thing of which he speaks with such powerful cadence in the second lesson which I read to you from Romans in the fifth chapter? Hear it again. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given us. Boasting in a hope that does not disappoint. Well, that's the kind of hope that I want. Now, sometimes reading Romans 5 sounds a bit like the sort of cheap and shabby advice and counsel we give people who are not used to our New England weather. I was just passing on my way into church this morning through the candidate courtyard, and this lovely girl standing out there looking utterly bewildered and at a dead loss. And I smiled and I said, good morning. And she looked at me and she said, I'm from Texas. I don't understand this. <laughs> and I said to her, my dear, it's good for your character. Now, is that essentially what St. Paul is talking about here? Remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned us against cheap grace. And I warn us against cheap hope. For hope is not merely the optimistic view that everything somehow will turn out all right if everybody just does as we do. It is the more rugged view that even when things don't turn all right and aren't all right, even now, we endure through and beyond the times that disappoint and even destroy us. The sense of hope to which I speak is that of which we read in the psalm. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise it, my help and my God. You know, the fellows who wrote the Psalms were basically depressed. That's why they wrote them. And you will read them carefully, and you'll discover they're railing against God. They have tremendous doubts. They don't know what's going on. But there is one thing to which they hope and hold on to. And that is their hope. It comes out all right usually in the last verses of the psalm. But you have to read the beginning to find out where they are. That is the kind of solid hope to which we are called. It is not a secular worldly hope that sustains the Christian. The hope that does not disappoint us in which we dare to boast. In Paul's words, the reason for our hope is described in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, while we were still vulnerable, Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. A better version is that of J.B. Phillips. And I'm going to read it to you for your comfort. Listen to what Phillips translates Romans 5. Since then, it is by faith that we are justified, 
let us grasp the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have confidently entered into this new relationship of grace. And here we take our stand in happy certainty of the glorious things he has for us in the future. This doesn't mean, of course, that we have only a hope of future joys. We can be full of joy here and now, even in our trials and troubles. I am sure this is not a matter of bare salvation. We may hold our heads high in the light of God's love because of the reconciliation which Christ has made. Romans 5 says that the basis of our hope is not some optimistic future, but has already been achieved for us who believe that God, through Jesus Christ, has reconciled us to him and to one another. It has already been done. It is not going to take place as a result of the next election or the next crusade or the next investment. It has already happened. And if Christian people, if you are genuine believers, you are here not because of something you hope to affect, but because of something that has already been affected in you. The reconciliation with God, even while we are yet sinners, and hence the reconciliation that we have with one another. Many years ago, my cousin Marjorie took me to see a play in Boston called Raisin in the Sun. It was by Lorraine Hansbury, something of a classic, and it had to do with the hopes deferred of a frustrated, faithful, ambitious, and conflicted black family, a black urban family. This was in the days when such subject matter was really not generally to be seen on Broadway. But Miss Hansbury's play captured the essence of the frustration of a people and a moment just beginning to come into their own, but wondering what happens to hopes deferred, what happens to dreams deferred, and in her play, she says, a dream deferred is like a raisin in the sun. It dries up, it dies, it turns hard. There is nothing there any further. I suspect she had in mind those words from our text this morning, which talk about hope deferred as making one sick at heart and yet desire achieved as a tree of life. It is in that hope not deferred, but experienced, in which the faithful in Christ boast. And the word boast is translated by J.B. Phillips twice in Romans 5 as holding one's head high. Wouldn't you like to be able to go through Advent holding your head high, not embarrassed by the tinny commercialism on every side, not embarrassed by the 
feeble, flickering flame of faith that the church sometimes tries to keep going. Holding your head high, knowing that it has been achieved. It's already been done. We are reconciled to God, and therefore we must live and act and behave as reconciled people. Not looking backward to some historical moment or forward to some moment that has yet to come, but celebrating here and now the light of faith and hope burning brightly in our hearts. You need to go home and read Romans 5. I suspect you haven't done so in a long time. Go home and read it. It's one of the most famous chapters in all of Scripture. It tells you what you need to know if you believe yourself to be a believing Christian. That's what you need to do. Now let me speak plainly about what I think the Advent hope is and is not. We do not hope for something that is yet to be. I do not place my hope in the government of the United States. I certainly do not place my hope in any of its current or would-be leaders. I do not place my hope in the global economy or those who try to explain it. I do not place my hope in some notion that prosperity is just around the corner and there is no golden age in the past or in the future which is worthy of my hope. The source of our hope as Christians has already come because it is the work that Jesus has already accomplished. It is that peace which passes all understanding. It is that ability to stand firm when there is upheaval and chaos everywhere else. It is that vision which we are able to sustain when we can see nothing else. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope misplaced seduces and destroys. But hope alive, the kind of hope which we have because of what God has done in Jesus, that hope empowers that hope enables, that hope sustains us, and we are able to stand tall and firm, even when everything else is falling apart. Why do we do this? Not because we have confidence in the world or its systems, but because we have confidence in the God who was before and will be after this world. And that God has claims upon us here. And now, this is the work of Jesus Christ done once and for us all. And because of this, we have hope. We may hold our heads high in the light of God's love. We can even endure the sentimentality of Advent because of the reconciliation which God has made in Jesus Christ. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Let us pray. Gracious and generous God, we give you thanks for that constant, firm, enabling and ennobling hope. Help us to cherish it, to nourish it, to nurture it, and to share it with all who come our way. Through Jesus Christ, who is our hope. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. 
You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.